today on Cross of Grace Radio with Pastor Ricky Alcanta. This is what we learn from the response in this city, that the tendency of our sinful human hearts is to give the final word in faith and life to our own sinful interests. Rather than going to the, the word and examining whether what they're hearing is true, they just react. They give the final word to themselves and their own selfish interests. And really that's all of us, isn't it? We all want the final word. We want the veto power at the end of the day. We'll listen to God's word, happy to take some advice every once in a while, but we want a veto power. Hope in God, oh my soul, He is strong and He is strong to save. Hope in God, He's a rock in your hiding place. He's a mighty fortress. Today, Pastor Ricky encourages us to take everything to the Word of God. The tendency of our human hearts is to want to make choices based on our own self-interests. Paul would preach in different places, and Luke pointed out that some of them compared what he said to the Word of God. Then they believed. This is what we're called to do, to rightly divide the Word. We aren't supposed to just believe everything that comes our way. We need to compare it to Scripture, then make our choice. Let's join Pastor Ricky in the book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 1, for part one of our message entitled, A Right and a Wrong Response to the Word. I want to ask a question this morning to begin with. The question is this, what gets the final word in areas of your faith and your life? What gets the final word when you're deciding on something theological or deciding about how to live your faith out? What gets the final word on a day-to-day basis as you make decisions? Think about this, for example. Okay, say, say you are a college student or you're at a workplace and you're, you're single, and you, you, somebody in the office or in the classroom catches your eye. And you're, you're thinking, okay, wow, I think something could be going on. And they're looking back at you, and you're starting to get to know them. But you're not really sure if they're a Christian yet. You're not really sure how far you should go with this. How do you decide? How do you decide whether to pursue that relationship and how to pursue it? Or take another scenario. Say you find a new TV show and you are loving this TV show. This TV show combines all of the aspects that you have loved since childhood, which is probably Transformers, Indiana Jones, and Star Wars. So it is about a prehistoric Jedi that also teaches you survival techniques, which is helpful because you love Man vs. Wild. So you love this TV show, but it's got some content that your grandmother would not be excited about. How do you decide? How do you decide I'm going to commit myself to this TV show or not? What about this? This is a little bit deeper. You've heard that the Bible teaches that there's only one way to God. But frankly, when you think about that and when you think about talking about that with your family or coworkers, that seems really offensive. And you think, okay, is there, is that, is there any way to kind of massage this so it's not as outright offensive to people? How do you decide? Or maybe you've grown up in church and you've heard that you're saved by trying to be a good person. But maybe you're coming to this church or another church that's telling you, you know what, that's not how to be saved. It's by having faith in Christ and and that alone that saves you. Well, how do you decide about such a crucial issue like that? So as as you consider your options in these scenarios, as you think about these things, what gets the final word? There's always one last thought going through your brain before you decide to do something, isn't there? What is that last word? Well, the big idea this morning is, I hope, pretty simple. The big idea is that the final word in faith and in life must be the word of God. 
In fact, this is so important. I'm gonna read this again, but when we get to that part where it says the word of God, I want you to say it with me, all right? Let's get some call and response. The final word in faith and life must be the word of God, amen. Well, we're gonna explore this idea by looking at two cities, how the gospel in Acts comes to two different cities, and both cities hear about the word of God, hear about the gospel, hear about the message of Jesus, but they respond in radically different ways. So let's dive in. First, we come to a city of jealousy and opposition. Book of Acts, we're in chapter 17, verse 1. Verse 1 says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollyona, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews. And so Paul is continuing his missionary journey with Silas and with Timothy, and he's entered Macedonia. The only time you've probably heard of Macedonia is that's where Alexander the Great came from. So he's in Alexander the Great's backyard making his way on a major highway, a major interstate of the ancient world. And Thessalonica is the capital of the region. It's the largest, most prosperous, most influential city in the area. So he comes, and as is his practice, he goes straight to the synagogue of the Jews. And verse 2 says, And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, which just means the lowlifes, the guys with nothing to do but to sit around and form mobs, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, who was one of the recent converts, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, meaning Paul and Silas, when they couldn't find Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, yes, that's probably basically a legal bribe saying we won't do this again, they let them go. So the gospel comes to this first city. But, but this story, although it's exciting, it's got mob action in it, would make a great TV episode in the book of Acts. We can dig a little bit deeper here by asking a couple key questions. First, let's ask, what can we learn about the word in this city? We're talking about the word of God this morning. So what can we learn about the word from the example of this city? Well, first, we see that the word of God is fundamentally about Jesus Christ. Remember that when Paul came to the synagogues, right, he didn't have the New Testament to like prove that Jesus was who he says he was, right? What did he have? He only had the Old Testament. I don't know about you, but I would be a little intimidated if somebody said, okay, you can't use the New Testament. I want you to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. I'd be like, man, okay, here we go. But this is exactly what Paul is doing. Why? Because Scripture reveals that the Word of God, Old and New Testament, is fundamentally about Jesus. See, Paul says he showed that Jesus had to suffer and die 
from the Old Testament. He, he showed that our sins, as revealed by the law, are always falling short of God's standard of perfection. And because of that, we deserve God's wrath because God is holy. But Paul also showed that Christ's victory over death meant that Christ paid for our sins by dying on the cross, just like a sacrificial animal. And his payment was accepted by God, and God vindicated him by raising him from the dead. You know, there's an, there's an amazing little story at the end of the Gospel of Luke where Jesus has resurrected and he's walking with his two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and the disciples don't recognize him for some reason. And so he begins, it says, there's, there's a great phrase, it says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Which meaning, means that, you know, he went from the law, the books written by Moses, he showed him how that related to him. He went through the historical books, King David and Solomon and the other kings, he showed, yeah, that's about me too. He went through the wisdom books like Proverbs, that's about me. He went through the prophets, showed that it was about me. And they all reveal different aspects. Some of them reveal God's holiness and his standard of perfection. Some of them reveal mankind's sinfulness. Some of them reveal God's disposition to provide salvation and to save his people. And others, maybe like King David, image in a very small way. They foreshadow the Christ that would come. And so Paul is laying out all this before the Jews. And this is, you know, side note, this is why reading the Bible should be a joy. Because see, at some level, sometimes we separate a relationship with Jesus from reading the Bible. Where it's like, man, I love the, like, touchy-feely part of my relationship with Jesus where I listen to a worship song and I'm just, yeah, you know, if that's, if that's you. But I don't like reading my Bible. I don't, I mean, it just feels like a chore. I got to stick to the plan. Just, I'm always condemned. If the Bible is about Jesus, and you love Jesus, you're gonna love this book, right? If I discovered somehow somebody had written a book about Jen, my wife, I would read that book because I love Jen. It's the same way, we love Jesus. And so God's given us a book about Jesus for us to read. And second, well, first we see that the word is fundamentally about Jesus Christ. And second, we see that the word is powerful. These leaders complained that the men who had turned the world upside down had come to their town also, right? But, but think about, reading the book of Acts, what have the apostles really done so far? I mean, they haven't really started a political campaign. They didn't get a Facebook page going. Basically, their plan so far has been to walk into towns and talk. And by doing that, they have turned the world upside down. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us never underestimate the power of this word. And sometimes we could think, you know what, Jesus, this seems like a lame plan. I mean, we don't have anything cool. You could have given us some really cool stuff. We get a book and that's all. But Jesus says, you know what? This book, this message has turned the world upside down. Isaiah 55, I love this verse. Isaiah writes, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, God says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. See, and these people were afraid of that. That's why they thought we've got to get these people out. So we learned a couple things about the word. But second, what can we learn from the response to the word in this city? Well, the response is that obviously the people form a mob and attack some guy's house. 
I mean, don't you feel bad for Jason in this story? I feel terrible. I mean, I don't know why they singled him out, but maybe he had the biggest house. They take this guy, they extract a bribe from him. I mean, what, what in the world? Why would they do this? Well, verse 5 says simply, but the Jews were jealous. That doesn't mean like all Jews everywhere. That just means the Jewish religious leaders of that town that were used to power and prestige, kind of having a certain status among the people. They didn't like Paul's sudden popularity. So you know what they do with the, with the message that's being proclaimed? They didn't bother to check Paul's words against God's word for the most part. Now these people choose, you know what, we're not going to judge Paul's message on the basis of the Bible. We're just going to kick him out of town. See, they did this. They rejected the message on the basis of their own selfish interests. And, and so do, does the rest of the town. See, in verse 7, the accusation against Paul is that Paul is saying that there is another King Jesus. And all the people get freaked out because this was treason in the Roman world. You do not want a Roman garrison marching into your town because you're proclaiming another king. But, but notice... They're not judging the word either, judging the gospel either by on the basis of the word of God, on the basis of whether it's true or not. They're judging it based on what's going to be good for them. See, they don't want to get killed, so it doesn't matter if it's true or not. These guys have to go. See, this is what we learn from the response in this city, that the tendency of our sinful human hearts is to give the final word in faith and life to our own sinful interests. Rather than going to the, the word and examining whether what they're hearing is true, they just react. They give the final word to themselves and their own selfish interests. And really that's all of us, isn't it? We all want the final word. We want the veto power at the end of the day. We'll listen to God's word, happy to take some advice every once in a while, but we want a veto power so that if it's not something we want, it's not good for us, we could throw it by the wayside. Well, that's the first city. Now let's look at the second city. This city is a city of eagerness and examination. Verse 10 says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. I love their persistence. I mean, you got to love that. And according to the, the historical documents of the day, Berea is sort of out of the way. In other words, they're coming kind of off the main highway into a small town, off of the main the main. Uh, road from east to west. And verse 11 says, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now, just a side note, when you're reading your Bible, you want to look for statements like this because Luke is inserting an editorial comment. You ever watch one of those movies where the movie's playing and all of a sudden like the narrator will like step out and talk to you for a minute and then kind of walk back and let you watch the rest of the movie? That's sort of what Luke's doing here. He's, he's kind of inserting himself kind of with his own editorial comment saying, hey, notice these Jews more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica. In other words, that's why these two stories are side by side. He, he wants us to compare them. That's Luke's, I think, intention with these two uh, narratives right next to each other. Verse 12 says, Many of them therefore believed, after comparing and examining, with not a few of the Greek women of high standing as well as men, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there, and those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So, what can we learn in this story? 
First, let's ask, what can we learn about the word in Berea? Well, first, we see that the word is sufficient. And notice that Paul, in both of these narratives, is not appealing to the learned rabbis. He didn't kind of get a a best-of rabbi crowd together and say, hey, all these guys agree that Jesus is the Messiah. They didn't appeal to a religious system. No, see, what Paul does is he just appeals to the word of God. And when these people think about whether what he's saying is true, they just examine it in light of the word of God. And this is something that we learn from Scripture we can classify sort of as the sufficiency of Scripture. If you're going to look this up in a systematic theology, it, this is, goes under the category of the sufficiency of Scripture. And this basically means, according to Dr. Grudem, a faithful theologian, the sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contained all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history. And, listen to this, that it now contains everything we need God to tell us for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. Isn't that so comforting? Knowing that when you give yourself to the word of God, it is sufficient. It's all you need. Now, can other things be helpful? Of course other things can be helpful. I love reading other, the works of other pastors and teachers, but only the word of God is sufficient. It's the only book on your bookshelf you can take an exclusive diet of and, be, and know everything you need to know for salvation, for trusting God, and for obeying him. But second, we also see that the word is clear. And this is really important. Notice that Paul and his fellow workers argued as if these people, who were not necessarily experts, could understand him. And the Bereans did understand him. See, we actually see how clear scripture is throughout the Bible. In Deuteronomy 6, God says, These words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. Now, Notice, he's not saying teach them diligently to everybody that kind of has the intellect and ability to get these, get these things because, hey, this is weighty. No, he says, hey, your kids will get this. It's okay, just go ahead and teach them. Proverbs 19.7 says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So some days I feel like that. You, know, you ever have a, a simple feeling day? If you, if you have ever felt simple, it's okay. The word of God will make you wise. And, and think about the fact that most of the New Testament letters were not written to the leaders, you know, of the church exclusively. They were just written to the church at large. In other words, Paul expected them to just get up and read his letter and for people to be able to understand. See, this points to the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. Dr. Grudem says, The clarity of Scripture means that the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who will read it, seeking God's help and being willing to follow it. There might be sections of the Bible that are hard to understand, but the message of the Bible is fundamentally clear, clear enough that a child could understand it. So we should not be intimidated by the Bible. We are invited for ourselves to read it. So that's what we learn about the word in Berea. Well, what can we learn from the response to the word in this city? I love this. Luke wants us to get this. He wants us to see how radically different this is. When they first heard the teaching, they received the word with all eagerness. I love that. See, these people loved God's word and they wanted to hear people teach it. See, in a a religious culture like ours in the city of El Paso, we, we have many of us grown up hearing the words of God. And so what this leads to over time, if we're not careful, is that we don't listen to the word of God. We don't come with eagerness as much as we come with apathy, with a whatever kind of attitude about the Bible. But these people, 
I love how Luke wants us to see this. He's saying, look at these guys. These guys are eager. They are ready to go. Then it says that they were examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And this word examining is, is a legal term, right? You ever seen a John Grisham novel or movie where they have a long montage of like somebody studying and then like papers on the floor and like cups of coffee and like Chinese takeout and long he's fallen asleep and more papers and okay that's what he's talking about it wasn't just kind of a cursory yeah let's let's see what's going on over here no I mean they 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 made a Starbucks run they sat down ordered their Chinese takeout and were ready to go this is this group of believers that's how seriously they took this task And so their response as a result of this is different. Instead of responding based on their own selfish interests, instead of giving themselves the final word, they gave the word of God the final word. They made God's word the final word in their faith and life. And so for us today, the word of God must be the final word on all matters of faith and life. What I want to do is I want to explore some topics that we need to apply this to or we need to consider applying this to. And I want to ask two questions to help us do this. First, what gets the final word in your faith and theology? And then second, what gets the final word in your life decisions? I was meeting with a brother this week great guy who's recently started coming to our church and he he and his family have a have a saying whenever you know you the preacher starts preaching or the word of God starts doing its thing and you kind of feel stung by it. And he, he talked about how they refer to that as getting their toes stepped on a little bit, okay? And so they love this. One time his sister, they were in church, turned to him and said, you know, how are your toes feeling today, bro? I was like, mmm, that's, that's good. Or when, when you're in a doctor's office and, and the doctor says, you know, you're gonna, this may sting a little. That's a bad son. That's, you, you do not want him to say that. My, my, favorite, my favorite is when you're at the dentist and they give you a shot and they say, you're not going to feel anything. It's just going to be a little sour. You know? I remember a dentist telling me that one time and I'm just like, what? That seems going to, oh, man. Like, and then about five seconds later, it did taste sour. But I'm just warning you up front, this, this may sting a little because it stung for me this week as I was considering this. Let's consider first what gets the final word in your faith and theology? What gets the final word? And look, maybe you're here and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian and you've been out of church for a long time and maybe you've heard Christians say different things about how to get saved or what Christianity is. Look, I'm just gonna upfront tell you, give the final word on that stuff to the word of God. Just read the Bible for yourself. It's clear, you'll be able to understand it. Start in one of the gospels. Learn about who Jesus is. And if you need help, ask one of the brothers or sisters from the church to help you. You can get this. And and it's much better for you to hear the word of God itself. See what it says about Jesus than than to try to find the perfect book to read to introduce you to Jesus Christ. He's right here. He's right here and he wants to meet you. Hope in God, oh my soul, He 